0: Spencer Tillman was born into a Christian home, but that didn't mean there weren't challenges. One was living in North Tulsa and being bused into another school district. He gravitated towards football and recalls the exact moment that he started down that path. While he became a natural leader, including being a co-captain of a Super Bowl champion in the NFL, with a couple of Hall of Famers, Spencer's always leaned on his faith to carry him through his career on the field and off. My candid conversation with former University of Oklahoma and NFL running back and college football
1: broadcaster, Spencer Tillman, is up next. This is Mitch Wilburn, preaching minister at the Park Church of Christ, proud sponsor of Suit Up. I'd like to extend an invitation to you to join us for worship at the park. We're a Bible-based church that loves the Lord and loves people. We have one service on Sunday morning at 9 a.m., and that's followed by classes for everyone, from newborn to 100 years of age. The park sits on a rather large lot near the corner of Garnett and the Creek Turnpike and offers a Sunday evening service at 6 p.m. and Wednesday night we meet at 7 p.m. Our youth have their own building with multiple men and women leading them. And our kids, age one to fifth grade, have their own educational wing that even has its own working carousel and ice cream parlor. And I love both. Kevin, the host of this podcast, is in charge of our sports ministry that goes on all year round with basketball, volleyball, softball, great activities. So come see us at the park on the corner of Garnett and the Creek Turnpike or check us out on the web at parkplaza.org.
0: My guest is Spencer Tillman. Of course, a lot of people around Oklahoma remember Spencer from the 80s, running back with the University of Oklahoma, and and of course had an NFL career that included a Super Bowl victory with San Francisco. And we'll get to all of that in a minute here with Spencer. But Spencer, I want to start by uh, going all the way back to the beginning. You were born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, born in 1964 went to high school at uh, Edison High School in Tulsa talk about growing up in Tulsa in the in the especially in the 70s cuz you know by the time you hit uh, 70 you were about 7 years old and really about the time uh, i guess you know people are really starting to remember what's going on around them
2: yeah you know that was the time when bussing was barely getting traction but it had begun and most of us kids were moving or coming early in the morning from North Tulsa Oklahoma which would be technically the other side of the tracks, and uh, coming over to South Tulsa, which is where the more affluent um, citizens of Tulsa resided, and so Thomas Edison. So it was new for everybody. Everybody was having to make adjustments, and um, and it was a tough time. I think the, the teachers had a tough time adjusting, and I think we did for myriad reasons. We had to get up oftentimes an hour and a half to two hours earlier just to be able to catch the bus, to make the ride over. So um, the adjustment was real for us, and, um, more than just the sociological part of it, it was a physical adjustment that had to be made. And then, um, you know, you know without a handbook or some sense of understanding, you're having to kind of uh, assimilate and do all of the things that are required of you to uh, operate effectively in, a, in a, um, a majority culture scenario. So, um, that part of it was challenged, but it was a, it was a joy. We didn't know any better necessarily. I mean, uh, we worked through it. Everybody, took their bumps and their bruises and and went on about it, and I think we're all better for it.
0: Let's go back even earlier to uh, life in the Tillman household. Tell us about your family.
2: Yeah, I'm one of um, five kids, and and my mom and dad were married for nearly 55 years before. They both since passed now. My, My dad passed last year, and mom passed a number of years before then. She was a missionary, I did work uh, domestic and abroad, mostly abroad, and traveled quite a bit. Um, my dad actually worked at a place called the Elks Lodge in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for many, many, many years. And um, you know, our, in, in so far as having a normal upbringing, uh, that may not have been normal because my mom traveled a bit. But um, other than that, it was you know us, uh, other five kids, working and, and doing what we did to make the family work. We still managed to go to church three times a week and. I uh, was raised in a reared, I should say. Uh, my mom would spank me if I said raised again. <laughs> I was reared in the Churches of God and Christ denomination. And, and um, um, you know, we uh, we we had great strict upcoming uh, upbringing, but the bottom line was we, we valued faith. We valued the notion or the idea of uh, adhering to a list of uh, rules, if you will, uh, but we moved past that to understand it was really about relationship more than anything else. And so uh, it's not about doctrines and regulations as much as it is about having a right-standing relationship with Christ. And so that was the center of our family. You know, I've got, um, I have since that brother and sister, uh, two brothers, rather, that have passed away. But, um, you know, my two sisters, and I have another brother that's out in the West Coast, uh, he's in the entertainment business and is a percussionist and has played for some of the largest uh, acts um, in entertainment and um, I've sisters in social work and they're doing different various different things and Having success there and um, you know, we're kind of peppered throughout But um, you know other than that the life was fine. It was great We were excited about what we did and uh, looked forward to waking up in the morning and doing more of it
0: Do you remember Spencer um, a particular year or an event that happened? um because i listen i grew up going to church too and i kind of Mm -hmm. i kind of gravitated towards the belief in god because i was being toted to church all the time but i remember a specific time and place where my faith became mine and not something Mm -hmm. that i was you know given to by my parents do you recall an age and or a specific time where your faith became really real
2: Yeah, I think you know we tend to remember inflection points that are bad sometimes. Uh, If you ask an athlete, what do you remember most about your playing career? You know, there may be some great moments, but they tend to point toward the negative ones, like who hit you the hardest and things of that nature. We don't even talk about the Super Bowls or the the national championships. But for me, on the faith front, I do remember specifically. It was at Branson, Missouri, at a Christian athletic camp called CanaCut. And on the lady side, it was called Canacomo. Of course, we didn't make it over to that side very often. But <laughs> on the on the male side, the canicut side, we had a camper who uh, drowned. It was the first time that had ever happened in the camp's history, and that was uh, I don't know around 1979-80, somewhere around that time. And uh, when that happened, it literally changed the way I saw the world and my place in it. And, and it's odd because uh, maybe it's not odd when you, in hindsight, that it happened someplace other than the four walls of a church. Uh, it, was, it was it happened in real time, and 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 that's so often uh, like how God you know speaks to us through circumstances, through His Word, and through other people. You know those primary conduits of what we were taught how God primarily talks, and this was certainly the circumstance of circumstance where literally you woke up one day and one of the members of one of the cabins next to you was no longer with you, and um, that was you know it was early in camp when it happened. So we had to do the balance of the camp and it was a different environment, uh, from that post day after that, it changed the way we saw ourselves in the world in which we operated. And for me, uh, I got closer to a lot of guys, people who to this day have become close friends. And, uh, one of which is, um, you know, Lamar Hunt's son. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, Clark Hunt and I have, you know, become fast friends and he endorsed my book scored in the red zone some years ago. And, um, and, and and it came out of that moment. It came out of that closeness that came from that crucible experience that caused us to see ourselves in the world in which we operated in differently, even at 17 years of age. And so um, that was the inflection point where I really started to examine at the deepest, authentic level what would happen if life ended for me right now. Uh, and we saw, Mark, that our campmate who passed away, Um, that that moment was very, very real. And so I rededicated my life to Christ at that point in time. And, um, you know, it's been a a wonderful ride since.
0: Well, and not without its bumps along the way, because I want to get to those as well, because I think that those are also the times as you get older and and your uh, faith gets deeper and that relationship with God gets better, that you really have to recall, you know, uh, and lean on the strength of of God to get you through some times. So let's mm-hmm. go, let's go back to um, how uh, football uh, entered Spencer Tillman's life, and when did it become a focal point as far as sports are concerned? Because I gotta assume you're probably a pretty good athlete in other sports as well.
2: Well, it started for me on the corner. I lived at an address. 537 East Young Place in North Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, there was a lady's house at the end of our corner. Her name was Grace Carey, C-A-R-R-I-E. And Miss Grace had a park, had a lot that, that set kind of adjacent to her house, adjacent to the street. And it was shaped like a small football field is what it looked like. And, um, you know, obviously smaller than the football field, but it, it was oblong. It was rectangular in its style. Uh, and so it had those two long parallels in the end zone, so it looked like a baby football field. So uh, we would play uh, impromptu games of football on her lot, and she would allow us to play there. And one particular day, I had a chance to play with the older kids, and there was one guy named Bobby Pennington, who I was able to make miss. I juked him and got around him, and I, I remember hearing everybody that was watching to go, woo, you know, <laughs> and it was the first time I'd ever, you know, had adulation like that kind of directed at me for something I physically did. And it made me – I never will forget the feeling. It made me feel really cool because those people were driving by in cars and and, and other folks were standing there watching. And um, they saw me make Bobby Pennington miss. And and, and I kind of got hooked on it from that standpoint on. And Bobby was the best athlete. Everybody knew that. And if I could make Bobby Pennington miss, then I kind of was liking this thing. So that's where I was introduced to the game. And uh, from there went to Pop Warner Football uh, we would make the trek over to Wade Whiteside Park in North Tulsa, 41st in Harvard, and we would play um, structured football, and then that moved on to junior high school, Thomas Edison, junior high school, and then on to Thomas uh, Edison. And one year, I left and came back to Booker T. Washington, which was uh, one of the rivals, uh, which was in my district, and we kind of went through a phase where we were saying, hey, do we want to continue to keep going on the south side of town let's just you know stick with tradition stay close to home so I did that one year in the ninth grade and I but I still played for Edison which was, it was a long story how that happened but um, they were grooming me to be the next back for Booker T Washington and all this stuff so I decided to just stay um, continue to go to um, Thomas Edison so um, uh, I aligned with Thomas Edison and matriculated from there eventually and uh, you know had a great career there and I think, I don't know how long it was, 37 years or so, um, had great success, and um, one of the records i set in was just broken, I guess it was 30-some odd years ago, mm-hmm. um, and um, so, yeah, it was a fun time, I enjoyed it, I stayed connected with him, and um, it was a great ride.
0: And two of all kids, a kid that is going to Nebraska to play college football. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, 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 that, that's, uh, you know, had a chance to spend some time with him last October, and... His coach did a great job of marketing and, and, and building that up. Uh, it's just a great example of, you know, how to make it, your program relevant and how to draw some attention. You know, that's one of the great things that you know, wise coaches understand because it's a crowded place out there. And one of the great jobs that Bob Stoops did doing his run at Oklahoma, you know, he put his marketing degree together and leveraged those players that, you know, were essentially recruited by John Blake, uh, 17 of the 22 core players that they won their national championship was recruited by someone else, but he brought the coaching prowess and the organizational structure that put uh, that program over the hump. And so in a similar way, I think what um, Savion's coach did at Thomas Edison was to put a narrative and a story and a promotional piece behind what he was doing to elevate him and parlay it to another level for the program. And I thought that was really a cool thing.
0: So here you are at Edison, um, obviously become – you know, one of the best running backs, certainly in the state at the time. And uh, thinking about college, tell us about some of the offers that you had and why you selected Oklahoma.
2: Yeah, you know, being a homegrown kid growing up in Oklahoma, I, was, um, I had some natural connections to Oklahoma University vis-a-vis. Uh, my dear friend to this day, Scott Noble, who was my center, and his dad, um, you know, Bill Noble, owned a company called Builder Steel in West Tulsa. And Bill had gone to the University of Oklahoma and ran track and uh, during the time period when he went, you know, it was during the war. So, uh, you had, um, you know, guys that were a little bit older than us who were coming back and as grown men essentially and playing at Oklahoma. But uh, he influenced me a great deal, uh, made several trips to Norman, um, in the capacity of a, of a fan, uh, and met Billy Sims and a bunch of other people who were doing cool things there at Oklahoma and just fell in love with the Crimson and Cream. But, I did attend, uh, a, you know, on a recruiting visit, went to Alabama. At the time, believe it or not, uh, SMU was really hot. Um, folks that are long suffering football fans will remember, uh, you know, Eric Dickerson and some of those great, uh, iconic names. Uh, Michael Carter, who I eventually would reunite with at San Francisco with the 49ers. He was a silver medalist shot putter, but played center, I uh, played nose guard, guard rather. On defense for the 49ers. And so, um, but they, they were a really, really good program, uh, during that, that stretch of the 80s. I mean, that the Pony Express was running with Craig James and, and uh, Eric Dickerson in the backfield and Lance McElhaney and names that your younger audience wouldn't know, but <laughs> they were pretty stud, man. They were pretty talented. So, um, I visited there, went to UCLA, um, went to a lot of big schools. But decided to to stay, went to Nebraska, too, uh, went on a recruiting trip for Nebraska. And I almost went to Nebraska, actually. And um, uh, decided to sign with Oklahoma because it was close. Um, uh, You know, it's kind of tough to pull me out of there. Billy Sims, when I got the Billy Sims jersey in the mail, that that did it for me. So uh, (laughs) that was it.
0: (laughs) What kind of influence did your parents have on what school you attended?
2: um didn't really have an influence on what school they pretty much left that up to me i mean my parents were really more interested in uh, how i was going to be raised uh you know reared rather and how i was going to uh, apply the education beyond the white lines of a football field to behind society's lines of scrimmage and they weren't really concerned about anything other than that and uh, my mom probably didn't watch much of the games anyway she would come to the games but she she it's, it's it's ironic because my mom was like six one and she was this tall, stately looking woman who had a certain amount of grace about her. Uh I didn't get the tall gene. I got my dad's side of it, but <laughs> um uh she she wouldn't watch the games most of the time. She put her hands over face, she didn't want to see her boy, you know, get get hurt. <laughs> so she <laughs> you know, she would she would enjoy the process but she just didn't want didn't like people hitting me. So yeah. uh but um, that was fun.
0: Well things uh started off really well for you at Oklahoma in 1983. You were a thousand yard rusher, uh, 10 touchdowns that season. And then uh, had a couple of years uh, in between that 1986 season where you rushed for over 600 yards again. Um, Talk about your career at Oklahoma and, and especially uh, you won a national championship with Oklahoma, of course, uh, in 1985 Uh, you were there uh, to see, you know, Marcus Dupree uh, just, you know, up and leave uh, after the Texas game. Um, I don't know how much, you know, you got to talk to him uh, at that time and, and, uh, you know, to try to help him wade through those waters. Uh, But talk about – and you were there with Troy Aikman uh, when he got hurt Mm -hmm. and Jamel Holloway comes in and leads the Sooners. So talk about your, your stay, those four years in Oklahoma.
2: Yeah, and I think you hit on the most important things. Uh, Those are the crucible experiences. You know, crucibles are events that, as a result of going through them, causes us to see ourselves and our place in the world differently. But more importantly, uh, something changes typically when you go through a crucible experience. You know, medieval alchemists used to think that they could convert base metals into gold, and we certainly know that's not metallurgically possible. However an authentic crucible in the human sense, you are transformed. It can change the way you see things. And I think it's in a very real sense, it's similar to what the relationship with Christ and trying to walk with the Lord is like. Uh, you you are going to have to live out your faith in, in some real tangible way at some point. So um, I think the success early at Oklahoma was great. Being the first freshman to ever rushed for a thousand yards at Oklahoma was really cool. Uh, I did break Marcus Dupree's record in that in that area, but, but being able you know, Marcus and I I redshirted actually. Marcus and I actually came in the same year. So, you know, we both were parade all Americans. Uh, he was the freak of nature physical specimen, this incredible, um, you know, unbelievable talent. And when I saw him I told, told Switzer, Hey, I'll take the redshirt, man. I'm gonna <laughs> this guy is something else here. So I decided to redshirt, and, um, you know, Marcus was doing his thing. I think he ended up with like 900-some-odd yards and uh, had an unbelievable postseason game against, um, I don't want to say it was Arizona State, rushed for like 249 yards and, and couldn't finish the game because he was out of shape and just tired, you know. Uh, but nobody could question whether or not he was a great athlete. There was no question about that. But being from Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, perhaps there were some sociological adjustments that needed to be made that he wasn't able to make, um, at least in a way that would lead to the success that we typically associate with a successful run at a major college, uh, football program. Of course, he ended up leaving. Um, so, um, when he left Earl Johnson and I, my battery mate, we, you know, got with the wishbone and, and broke the bone and came with the kind of split eye kind of situation with the Mac Brown as our offensive coordinator, and uh, you know we did some really cool things with Mac, and Mac leveraged that year and uh, went on to become uh, the head coach of North Carolina, and um, and um, so uh, he had some success, and the program continues to do that to this day. Coaches matriculate on after they have success, but for me, I think there was a definite arc of the of the success at Oklahoma. It was. Uh, interrupted like life is interrupted often. Uh had a hamstring injury that sidelined me, and my production went down uh, for two years and then started to come back a little bit. But when you you know get out of that lineup at Oklahoma, I don't care how good you are, I made parade all American or not, it didn't matter. You had always somebody locking and loaded, ready to perform, who deserved to play if they had success, and you didn't lose your position typically because you were injured necessarily. But if you were and somebody stepped up, You know, the same rule applied. They weren't going to lose it unless they were injured. So uh, I was able to force the hand a little bit with performance and get back in there and compete and and have some good success and was a starter for the balance of my career and, and the beginning as well. But um, no question we were sharing some time with Patrick Collins and Anthony Stafford and other great athletes that were there, Lydell Carr. And just the sheer fact that we were running a wishbone, you know, technically we had four running backs in the backfield at any time, including the, uh, the quarterback who ran the ball as much as we did. And you alluded to Jamel Holloway. Jamel, of course, is the only freshman. Um, I think it's happened now since one other person has done it, a kid at Clemson. But um, Jamel is the only true freshman uh, of the first two freshmen to lead a team to a national title. And and that, that was again, broken just last year. So, or not broken, but tied. You can only be first once. Yep. So, um, and Jamel did that last year. I mean, he did that, but it was the Clemson quarterback did it last year, but um, um, Jamel Holloway is an outstanding, gifted, talented quarter signal caller. And, um, you know, had great success playing and competing with him. So my college career, um, I would say if there's anything that kind of stood out that made it exceptional was the getting hurt after having great success early and having to wrestle with setback and defeat and then trying to return back to form and the relationships that were formed uh, in during that process. A gentleman named Rich Lika, Native American fella, uh, who helped me nurse myself to help. And I'm so proud, and I love him dearly, uh, that to this day we still remain in contact and talk often on the telephone and he lives there in Norman, Oklahoma, his impact on me was so profound that when he saw me stretching on the, on the uh, track there, uh, trying to nurse myself back after practice, he came over and began to talk to me. And he, I never will forget the one thing that he ended up saying, he was a very quiet guy, but he talked about nutrition, uh, rest and recovery, hydration and resistance training being the four pillars of a successful running back. And, um, You know, I had to adjust some things, particularly hydration and nutrition. And when I did that, I slowly started to come back, got more flexibility. And the impact was not just felt, but it was seen. Coach Barry Switzer started working with me. um, And actually, from that day forward, after we returned to the field to compete, Barry Switzer had a front row seat for him uh, on that bus. And he traveled with the team. Uh, He went to every road game, every weight game, every home game. He was there. And uh, he was quiet, you know, um, didn't say a whole lot. Uh, and I actually took him with me to the National Football League when I came here as well. And So other athletes benefited from his prowess. But he, along with Jerry Kasem, who was the highway patrolman that Barry Switzer had, well, became fast friends. And uh, they would go over the ride-alongs and things of that nature that they would talk about. But that was one of the most profound relationships that came out of that difficult spot in my life. And to this day, we remain fast friends.
0: Spencer, let's move on into your NFL career. You were a fifth-round pick by the Houston Oilers uh, at the time in 1987, 133rd uh, overall pick. What were you being told going into that draft? Was that where you thought you would end up, or were you being told you would go earlier?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was told I would be a, a mid- to late-round first round um, draft pick, and and again, that's – um but there were reasons why that was the case. It had a lot to do with the injuries and, and things of that nature with the hamstring. And um you know, I don't cry sour grapes or anything to that effect, but uh you know, when when that narrative gets out there and you don't get the support that you need from your know, your trainers and managers and things of that nature, uh scouts because they're dealing with such high stakes uh situations, they're going to be ambivalent about it. And what probably helped me even get drafted period was performance I had in the Senior Bowl, I had a couple of big, touch, uh, big catches in the Senior Bowl that caught the eye of some San Francisco 49 niner folks. That's ultimately why I ended up at San Francisco. But uh, C. O. Bocado, who was the, the regional scout, the late C. O. Bocato, um, for the, the Houston Oilers, uh, saw me play and compete, and he says, "Look, you know, we run this one-back set, and we're going to be doing some spread stuff." And this was before it was called the spread; it was a run and shoot. And he said, but, you know, would, would a running back from Oklahoma come here? And uh, he was concerned about whether or not I would play at a high level. Because, you know, if you started at Oklahoma, you were going to be a pretty elite back, and you wanted to be somewhere where you are going to play. So I said, look, no, I can compete anywhere. It doesn't matter to me. And sure enough, they ended up drafting me, and they were running a single-back set. And so imagine this. You're going to a place where, you you know, were started at Oklahoma, but you're drafted to a team that's running a one-back set, and here are the, the, the starting lineups uh, over that time period that I was there. Heisman Trophy winner Mike Rozier, <laughs> um, uh, Alan Pinkett, who finished second in the Heisman, Lorenzo White, who finished second in the Heisman Trophy. They they same year eighty seven. I was drafted. Uh, Alonzo Highsmith was drafted number one in the first round. I want to say fifth overall. And so you had you know four top three running backs and one Heisman Trophy winner in that group, and two other Heisman Trophy um, um, semifinalists. So that that's the kind of competition you have. You know, so I had to become a special teams ace, third down back, cut the ball out of the backfield really well for, for an old running back from Oklahoma, but uh, was able to parlay that into something special, and uh, it garnered me an eight-year NFL career, and I, I'm happy about that. because you know, A lot of times you, you can't dictate your career path of when you're going to get drafted, but you've got to be able to adapt and make the most of what you are given and presented. And that we can't, you know, control our birth order or anything like that. What we can tro- control is the amount of effort we bring to the table when we- we're put in a position to be able to collaborate and compete. And that's what we did. and I think we did it successfully.
0: Obviously uh, a natural leader uh, in so many ways. And Spencer, once you're traded to San Francisco, you become co captain with a guy named Joe Montana and Ronnie Lott as a part of the 49ers team that wins the Super Bowl and beats Denver.
2: Yeah. yeah that was cool. That was, um, you know, when I first got there, uh, I was asking Dr. Harry Edwards, who was our team psychologist, and that just kind of shows you in and of itself how San Francisco were light years ahead of any other of programs. They were the first teams to ever have. Someone that was concerned and interested in and understood the the interplay between kids from different backgrounds and and, and why the locker room's composition was so important. But Dr. Harry Edwards was responsible for organizing the locker room, and among many things, and uh, his work was done under the radar oftentimes. But I one of the things that always concerned me, or at least was of interest to me, was why my locker was between Joe Montana and Steve Youngs. And, uh, I asked Dr. Air was that one day and he says, uh, you just keep being Spencer and you'll find out one day and we'll talk about it in a couple of months. And that was during this, the summer and we were having uh, many camps and those camps were over with and you paid for it another few months. We're three quarters of the way through the football season. And, and I remember coming off the field one day and Steve Young just asked me, he says, Spence, how do you do it man so you're bouncing around every day and so says you're playing behind Roger Craig but you know you you're getting the ball on third down and some of this other stuff and you know you are a captain on teams and and that's all great he said but you but but you you can start you know you're 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 good enough to start you could be starting for any other team in the league uh, how do you do it how do you maintain that and I'm thinking to myself this is Steve young asked me that now Steve young is not a Hall of Fame quarterback at the time we called him Bobby Brady he has a dark <laughs> curly-haired kid who was precocious and was always thinking about stuff too much to be any good to himself or anyone else. But the reason why he was in that situation, he, people didn't realize this, but he was as gifted as anybody we had on our team. Now, he had to know that. And so I remember telling him, I said, well, your situation kind of reminds me of a story I learned years ago. It's kind of like David. You are anointed, but you're not quite yet appointed is what I told him. <laughs> and he looked at me kind of with his look. And I said, he said, where'd you learn that? And I said, well, you know, I'm the son of a missionary, yada, yada, yada. We talked, chopped it up a little bit. He said, what do you do on Tuesdays? And, I, and Tuesdays are the perennial days off for the uh, professional athletes. So we would go over to Brent Jones' house, our tight end, and we'd have Bible studies. So here you have this third-generation Mormon uh, trekking over to uh, you know us Judeo-Christians' apartments to have these little Bible studies, and we would talk not so much about religion in the strictest sense of the definition— but we would talk about the stories and the narratives of people overcoming, uh, people that did wonderful, great things, lesser-known figures in Scripture, like Nehemiah, his reclamation project of Jerusalem, how it happened, with the impact of, of heroines like Lois and how she inspired Timothy and told him to fan in the flame that smoldering fire that's inside of him by the laying on of hands. And just all of the, It's just replete with examples of how people inspire other people. And uh, then I would talk to him about how God's Word impacted me, and how my mom would tell me stories growing up that were biblically-based. And I remember one scriptural passage where it talks about, as the snow and the rain comes down from heaven and waters the seed and causes it to bring forth after its own kind, so shall my Word be. It will not return void until it has achieved the purpose unto which it was sent. Now, I'd learned that when I was probably about nine years of age. Didn't know what it meant at the time, but my mom, in her wisdom, would sit down and, and articulate to me in common language. She would say, Spencer, you have to realize that God has so arranged the affairs of nature that if you were to take a seed and put it in the ground, you water it, you nurture it, and the sun kisses it, and you do your part, the the seed really has no choice in the equation. It must do what it was called to do. And what God is doing is taking the truth of his creation in in nature, that is the seed and how it propagates, and applying it to the word of God. And he's paralleling that truth of nature. With his word and says, As the sea, so shall my word be. It, the word, will not return. It cannot return void until it has achieved, achieved the purpose unto which it was sent. The only thing that can mess it up is you. The only thing that's mess it up is us. And so when she would explain that to me, it gave me a tremendous sense of confidence about how to go about doing things. Now, you have to be careful so as to not let that become religion in the strictest and prescriptive sense of the word. But she was very keen about understanding how to separate and tease that out as well. And she helped me understand that people are fallible. We make mistakes. And so we're not perfect. And uh, we, we don't hold people to to the level of perfection. Uh, we have to have grace. And so she would teach me about that as well. And so I was able to be an example for Steve, and I'm, I'm glad about that. And, and um, you know, it's, it's amazing. He ended up eclipsing Joe in terms of his raw athleticism, he had that before. He just didn't have a context in which to demonstrate it But In terms of records and things of that nature, he holds as many as Joe does, and uh, not as many Super Bowls, but the bottom line is uh, he has his own place carved out in San Francisco, 49 and lore.
0: Spencer, I love how you um, lean on Scripture and you lean on that relationship and have for uh, all those years and through so many different things in your life, but I can't imagine that you... Um, didn't lean uh, the hardest on that relationship with the Lord any more than you did when you got married, and then had four daughters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that was when uh, I remember telling my dad. You know, we had three, obviously. And then, then, then I told my dad, you know, they were all girls. So I was trying to get the boy, you know, doing the legacy thing, the ego getting involved, and and so my, I remember calling my dad up on the phone. I say, Pop. Um, we got another one in the oven, and there was just, no pun intended, there was this pregnant pause on the <laughs> other end, and he had you had to know my dad, and he said, boy, don't you have cable TV? And I said, I said yes, sir, I do have cable TV. He said, yeah, stop making us find out what's, what's causing that. I said, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we ended up having our, our fourth daughter, and, um, and uh, they're all doing wonderfully. I mean, we've got the oldest is nearly 31 years old so she's doing well she works for Nestle she's a, a, a district manager for them and, and it's been building an unbelievable career she was with the kind company before that uh, and all these are uh, national um, you know confection companies and and um, products and services and things of that nature and then I've got another one who works for an architecture firm in Oklahoma City and one that just started with Dell as a project manager for Dell all of them have master's degrees and um, then I've got one that's bringing up the rear. That's the, the, the Bailey who was g- going to be my little boy, but she's, she's, she's as crazy as I am and was in terms of an athlete. She's a libero plays volleyball and cat quick, you know, she's just got passionate, uh, understated in a lot of ways more so than I am in that regard, but she's got a lot, a lot to give and a lot to offer. She's very talented. So she'll be, you know, playing volleyball some, for someone out there. Um, so looking forward to seeing her matriculate and, and move on. But those four daughters, as, as you said, they're wonderful. And they love their dads, man. They take care of their dads. That's another good thing about it. Uh,
0: that's awesome. Listen, Spencer's. thank you so much for your time and for your insight and your thought. And I know there are a lot of listeners uh, who are going to gain a lot from from listening to what you had to say over the last 30 minutes or so. And I will leave you with this. Um, I do hope that we, I know we'll have college football again. I don't think that's an issue. But obviously, what form college football takes this year, uh, that's still unknown uh, as of you and I talking today. But I certainly hope you guys, uh, you and and Tim Brando, can get back in the booth uh, here in the next month or so.
2: You bet. I look forward to that. Thank you for the time.
0: Thank you, Spencer. My thanks to Spencer Tillman for being a part of Suit Up. Please be sure to check out other interviews and please give us a five-star
2: rating.